I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for the star of the show, old Red Nose himself, the one, the only, Mr. Punch. Yeah, that's the way to do it. You put a spell on the dog, I said as we left the house. Just a small one, said Nightingale. So magic is real, I said, which makes you a... what? A wizard? Like Harry Potter? Nightingale sighed. No, he said, not like Harry Potter. In what way? I'm not a fictional character, said Nightingale. Very postmodern. Very good. Very postmodern. Nice. Isn't it? Welcome back to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that is curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Presented by me, Tim Wright, and you... Lloyd Shepard. This is part two of our adventure with The Rivers of London by Ben Aranovich. In part one, we were upstream of the Thames, old Father Thames's territory. Yeah, who never wears any clothes in, in, in any depiction I've seen of him, but in the book he's he dressed with clothes. So we did uh, upstream of the Thames, went from the source of the Thames all the way down to the Hamilton's Ferry. That was quite a long old uh, trip, that, uh, wasn't it? We're now firmly in London, where the river nymphs mm. exist. Uh, all under Mama Thames uh, in Wapping. He uses a term, I notice, uh, when he describes them, where they're talking about being river nymphs or orissas? Orissas, Orissas. But also talks about being midichlorians. Did you see that reference? That's a Star Wars reference. Exactly. It's a joke, right? Okay. Really, said Leslie, who's your dad then? This is to Beverly Brook. Yeah. That's complicated, said Beverly. Mum said she found me floating down the brook by the Kingston Vale dual carriageway. In a basket, asked Leslie. Nice. No, just floating, said Beverly. She was spontaneously created by the midichlorians, I said. Both women gave me blank looks. Never mind. It's a Star Wars reference. And that blank look that he's getting, I've been getting a lot of (laughs) during the recording of this podcast. And rightly so. The midichlorians are the rather unpopular invention of George Lucas in the sequels to Star Wars, or the prequels, I should say. <gasps> nerd, nerd mistake there. The prequels to Star Wars. Uh, and they're the ones who generate the Force. Right. So I think... So Anakin Skywalker, oh, yeah. the future Darth Vader, plot spoiler, the implication is that he was created by the midichlorians. Okay. So it's a Star Wars reference. I do go on. And you mentioned earlier, you mentioned in the first half that he always tries to not put more than two Monty Python references in again. He also worries about Star Wars references because Peter Grant wouldn't be into original Star Wars references. Not old but enough. Peter Grant would be into prequel Star Wars references, <sighs> given his age. So in terms of the legendarium of the story, that joke makes absolute perfect sense and is perfect. Okay, listener, I think I've just unlocked something for you there about the flavour of this book. The nature of its popularity amongst a certain type of reader and the cultural references that you're going to find within this book. The, Perfect. Uh, the, the, the in jokes. Yeah. That if you're not in, you don't get. Yeah. So what, it's all what, part of it. It's all part of it. And just to explain, this book is about Peter Grant, who's been recruited by a guy called Nightingale into a, a se- into a secret department of the Metropolitan Police that investigates magic and murders and sinister things that happen because of the growth of magic in London. And his first case is uh, to investigate people having their heads knocked off by other people with big sticks. Is that, that's it, isn't it? 
Well, I just I thought I'd just let you run with that. Right. But it opens and closes in Covent Garden. It does. Which it is where we're going to... Grant leaning which, on a column at the east portico of St Paul's in Covent Garden. Yes, and there's a reason for that. There is. Which we discovered when we got there. Yep. The gardens were enclosed on three sides by the brick backs and shuttered windows of the terraced houses built at the same time as the rest of the piazza. Cut off from the traffic noise, they formed a calm green space, watched over by the true portico of the church. Cherry trees, pink with flowers in the May sunlight, were planted along the path. It was, as Nightingale had said, quite the loveliest spot in London. It was just too bad that I was going to be coming back at midnight to perform a necromantic ritual. Of course, yeah. Of course that's happening. Just leave, the, leave it running for a little bit because you can probably just hear the noise from the piazza. Ah, yes, good point. Because the start of the book is uh, out the front of... Peter Grant is on the east side of the church, which the is the si- church, side so of the church facing the piazza of Covent Garden. Which is, which is the one you probably Garden. know if you've come to Covent Garden. But actually it's not the front, but that's actually the back of the church. So the reason they, they boarded up the front and put the altar there is because they said, no, 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 you can't have the entrance there because the altar's got to go there. Oh, so the entrance was going to be on the, on the piazza? Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. interesting. And they closed okay. it up. But now, so we're at the back. It, w- it would have been the old churchyard just behind us. We actually, uh, we're actually sitting on a bench uh, dedicated to John Thor. Lewis. Seldom, surely, has the death of a great actor brought such deeply personal sadness to so many millions of admirers, Lewis. We're the Sweeney, we haven't had our dinner. <laughs> but we're standing in front of a rather odd sign that's kind of in the middle of a flower bed that says, uh, Actor Bill Fraser fell asleep <laughs> 1908 to 1980. And we were like, Did, what, he fell asleep there? That's more or less where they try and dig up the so body of. Th- they're um, here to dig up the body of Nicholas Woolpenny. Yes. Who doesn't exist, by the way. I looked up Nicholas Woolpenny. No Nicholas Woolpenny. But Charles Macklin... Charles Macklin, however, who... The ghost of Henry Pike, who is the cause of all the trouble in this book. Spoiler alert. Uh, He's not actually the cause of all the trouble. He's just the host for the cause of all the trouble. The host for the trouble. He alleges that he was murdered by... Charles Macklin. Charles Macklin. And Charles Macklin did kill somebody... With the point of his stick going through the man's eye. Yeah. So basically, he quarrelled with a fellow actor named Thomas Hallam mm-hmm. in 1735. He accidentally killed by thrusting his cane through Hallam's eye. The pair had argued over a wig. Yes, that they were in a play together, weren't they? Yeah. The incident occurred in the scene room of the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, which is now the Royal Opera House, isn't yeah. it? and in front of many witnesses, and Macklin, after a sudden fit of temper, was sorry and arranged for a physician to attend to Hallam. Unfortunately, the cane had pierced through the eye into the brain, and he yeah. died one day later. Yeah. Can you imagine? Horrible. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he was tried for murder, conducted his own defence, and though not acquitted, escaped with manslaughter, and the punishment for manslaughter was the branding of a letter M upon his hand. The slightly chilling thing about it, because he claimed it was an accident... Yeah. The slightly chilling thing about that is he's got a memorial stone in the church, which yes. means to look at it. But rather chillingly, above it, there's a picture of a, a mask, like the actor's mask, yeah. with a knife through the eye. <laughs> through the eye. <laughs> They're saying that that might have been some kind of message of regret, as it were. Really? It doesn't feel like that, It doesn't though, does feel it? like regret. It feels more like, a, yeah, I did it, <laughs> and now you can't get me because I'm dead. <laughs> It feels it's more like that. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Well, in the book, he's sort of characterised as a bit of a bully, isn't he, yeah. in a sort of yeah. big... But I think in his lifetime, it says... What's extraordinary about him is he did live to probably 90, into his 90s, because his birth date is unknown, because he was born yeah. in Ireland. Like all great actors... Was he, in, was he embellishing he, the truth? He was forever young. <laughs> he was forever young. Do you know Don't he, ask me when I'm born, darling. No, but the point is that he... One sta- never asked that. He, was, he became incredibly famous... For playing Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. He did, because he went back to the original Shakespeare, right? Well, also and researched no, he, the role. He well, wore a red he, hat. He, yeah, but he, he, he dressed in more or less contemporary clothes, though, rather than yeah. theatrical clothes. And yeah. he had a very naturalistic acting 
style, which yeah. was very revolutionary. Yeah. But the thing is, he went on, so that was in 1741. 50 years later, he was still playing Shylock oh, right. every year. Oh, yeah. And he had to stop playing Shylock because he forgot the words because he'd got too old to remember them. He claimed to be able to remember any speech that was read out to him once, word for word. Yeah, but by the time he was 95, he couldn't. Anyway, he, he but, sounds like a bit of a bullshitter to me, generally. Well, the point is, he's, he found his role in his what must have been his 40s. Yeah. And stuck to it. And then he... No wonder he had an argument over a wig, because he would have needed... A, to, it's part of who I he am. Said, that, that's my young man's wig. You can't take that away from me. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone will know that I'm 75. So Peter Grant comes here to, to basically draw a pentagram and dig up the body of Warpenny, right? Yes, he does, yeah. I mean, this, this is, is the good. central location, is it? Because it starts out the front with the punch and... Uh, with yeah. Exactly where the Punch and Judy shows would have been put on. Well, there's a there's actually a sign at the east end of the portico, listener, yeah. that's saying the first Punch and Judy show ever performed was wow. in, was on that portico. That was amazing, witnessed by it? Peeps. And obviously it's opposite the Punch and Judy tavern. So, favourite... Um, uh, memori- there's, there's loads of memorials in the church because oh, yeah. it's the actor's church. Yeah, yeah, very good. That's why we're on John Thor's bench. Yeah. Favourite memorial in the church? Would you? Well, I, your I like there's one wall where one end there's Diana Rigg and the other end there's Fenella Fielding. Yeah. Well, in my head, that's... that's, uh, I'm, that's I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the plaque in the middle. There's a lot of teenage <laughs> dreams wrapped up in there. For you? Boris Karloff and Nicholas Parsons. That, yeah, and that's the difference between me and thee. <laughs> Stop it. You've been a naughty boy. Yes, you have. You've broken the law. I don't care that you never touched it. Don't get clever with me. I'm going to take you down to the station. We're not going anywhere. It's the police station, not the train station. You are under arrest. Under a vest. No, not under a vest. It was the day of the Covent Garden Mayfair which celebrates the first ever recorded performance of Punch and Judy with a brass band parade, a special puppet mass at the Actors Church, and as many Punch and Judy shows as can be crammed into the church grounds. While I'd been a probationary constable at Charing Cross, I'd always been on crowd control that day, so I called up Leslie and asked if she wanted to try the fare from the civilian point of view. We got ice cream and Cokes from the Tesco Metro and dodged around the tourists, until we reached the front portico of the church. A single professor's booth had been set up, not half a metre from where poor old William Skirmish had had his head knocked off. Ah, which is the first crime, right? It's the first crime. It's good, that, isn't it? It's Tesco Metro. Yes. I think we've both been in there, have we not? We've both been in there. It's on the corner with New Row, isn't it? It used to be the only place you could buy cigarettes around there for a long time. Oh, yeah, that's probably a good point, yeah. <laughs> anyway, because he, he worked in the Waterstones bookshop, which is basically right by there. Well, he would it? have gone and got his sandwich in the Tesco Metro. So Covent Garden, <laughs> we're well into Covent Garden now. Yes, he really knows this part of the world very well. Yes, he does. And as we were sitting there taking it in, I think we, we got, I certainly got more admiring of his detail and his sense of location. Well, write what you know. I mean, as we found with Mick Heron, if you write about your workplace and all yeah. the way around it, it's because you probably know it better than anywhere else. Yeah, and it's a spectacular location. Well, it's had hundreds of years of association with fruit and veg because it's where the, <laughs> it's where the monks used to grow their fruit and veg. Did they the monks now? at Westminster Abbey. So it was the convent I knew garden. you know that. Yeah. It was the convent garden, hence Covent Garden. They can't even get their names right. No. Too busy on the Benedictine, aren't Too they? Too busy on the Benedictine. Uh, and it was owned by the monks right up until the dissolution of the monasteries in the, in the uh, 16th century, okay. Henry VIII. And then Henry VIII's son, Edward VI, Yes. Um, who was about 14 at the time, in the short amount of time he was king, right. gave the whole thing, lock, stock and smoking barrel, to um, Lord Russell, Duke of Bedford. Duke of Bedford. We'll come on to uh, Russell Square. We're uh, going there. Uh, we're going there. But, yeah, it's worth saying that for hundreds of years, the whole thing was owned by the Dukes of Bedford. Stitch-up job, right? Total stitch-up job. And, and you know, because of the, because of the market and the theatres... In the sort of 18th and 19th centuries, it got increasingly sort of dissolute. I've got a really good quote here from Covent Garden. London about the fact that the local residents complained about it. Yeah. They were concerned about the noise, the stench, the obstructed streets, the unauthorised selling of booze, and the great number of profligate and disorderly people who frequent the square, and particularly that part of it called 
Irish row. Uh, Having a little pop at the Irish just at the the end of it. Nice. It's a a great standing London tradition. Yeah. So every year in May, there is, for the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a thing called the May Fair, which which is the quote, the the reading we did at the beginning of this is them going to the May Fair. I'd never heard of it. I'd never been there. I'd never heard of it. And it celebrates the first recorded performance of a Punch and Judy show in England. Yeah. And that is from Peeps' Diary. Oh, excellent. Want to read it to you? Yes, please. Thence with Mr. Salisbury, who I met there, into Covent Garden to an alehouse to see a picture that hangs there, which is offered for 20 shillings, and I offered 14, but it is worth much more, but did not buy it, I having no mind to break my oath. Thence to see an Italian puppet play that is within the rails there, which is very pretty, the best that I ever I saw, and great resort of gallants. Oh, gallants. What are gallants? I, th- I think people having a, you know, like sort of people marching up and down looking, looking cool. Oh, okay. Flaneurs. Flaneurs. <laughs> no, okay. No, no. Podcasters. Yeah, so they're the Italian puppet play that he talks about there. So yeah. this is from the 9th of May, 1662. So that's where they get their anniversary from, is the that's May where they get the anniversary from, which from is Peeps And there's a sign to it on the East uh, Portico of the church. Okay. I've got to say, I wouldn't go and watch it nowadays. I think I'm too mm. woke. Mm, I think you might be. Well, it's 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 a perfect example of something that is so off the chain and yeah. extreme that we're almost losing the the cultural instruments to process it anymore. Ooh. And that's I think this book's quite good at that actually saying, you know, if 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 it was actually real, if people actually started behaving like this. It would be really bad. Well, it would be really dark. Funny enough, as you say that, I'm thinking, oh, well, it's quite, quite good that at the other end of the Covent Garden, he has the Royal Opera House audience going crazy going and mayhem. Nuts. And, of course, all posh people go and watch terrible murders in Tosca and all these other yeah. operas. Ghastly things going on all the time. But we don't say that they shouldn't be played because, it, because it's high art. Exactly. Whereas when it's, it's punch and Judy low art, and it might it might be a bad influence yeah. on the on the lower classes. Good point. So so he's, maybe he's that juxtaposition is intriguing. We him. should have more punch and Judy. Yeah, he's enjoying Covent Garden as a liminal space between high Ooh. art and low art. Ooh, look at that. Yeah, you, you see what there. I just did there? Look what you did there. Yeah, I tell you, he did like punch and Judy. Yeah, Charles Dickens. Of course he did. He loves a bit of violence. He loves. But I wrote, found this letter that he wrote about it. And I think this is, actually, he's of a mind to what you were talking about there. In my opinion, the street punch is one of those extravagant reliefs from the realities of life, which would lose its hold upon the people if it were made moral and instructive. I regard it as quite harmless in its influence and as an outrageous joke, which no one in existence would think of regarding as an incentive to any kind of action or as a model for any kind of conduct. It is possible, I think, that one secret source of pleasure, yes, very generally derived from this performance, is the satisfaction the spectator feels in the circumstance that likenesses of men and women can be so knocked about without any pain or suffering. To be honest, it's more the women that get knocked about than the men. But uh, I think the police officer gets it. The police officer does get it. I mean, everyone gets a bit battered, don't they? In the end, uh, and then he gets, and the devil turns up and. Does a bit of bashing yeah. as well, doesn't yeah. it? There is no. That's fair enough. The, bat- the battering is fairly well. <laughs> it's everywhere. And yeah. Charles Dickens is like secretly. Bring it on. I think we all like that, don't we? Yeah. Where are we off to next? Well, we are going to head out of Covent Garden, and we're going to basically be travelling across the various Duke of Bedford's lands. Yeah. We won't be able to escape them. Yeah. So we can go to the Royal Opera House if you like. We can go up Neil Street and look for a gastro pub. We can go and look for the Folly in Russell Square. It doesn't matter where you go. The Duke, the Duke of, of Bedford, Bedford owns it. That perked her up and got me not just the name of the gastro pub Dr. Framline was heading for, but also his mobile number. Beverly had to trot to keep up with me. He was headed back to the car. What's the rush? she asked as we climbed in. I know the pub, I said. It's on the corner of Neal Street and Shelton Street. I pulled out without waiting for Beverly to buckle up. Right across from there is the pedestrian space outside Urban Outfitters. Mm. That's so very ha- handy to know. Handy to know. <laughs> it's a little bit of a 
there's a couple of points in there in the book where he kind of puts in a bit of detail. You kind of go, why have you bothered with why that? Why that in? It's like it is like a walking guide. It is like a walking and guide. And guess where we are? We're outside. Well, we're between we're in the, the pedestrian space outside <laughs> on the corner so of Shelton Street and Neil Street. When you read the book, it does work. The only thing I'd quibble with is uh, so the Crown and Anchor is the pub. Yeah, uh, it's a. Over 100 years old, it's got a big sign on it. Crown says. and Anchor 1904. Yeah, it's not a gastro pub, it's not a gastro pub. It, you know, come come at us if you've ever been there in the two in the noughties, meal in the noughties and had a fine meal there. Let us know about it. I don't know. Do you know what we should do? Is I should check it up on TripAdvisor. I think by 2010, gastro pub's a bit of an old phrase, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I looked it up. There was a, there's a review of the Eagle at the Guardian in 19. 19- 90? Yeah. 91? Yeah. Saying this is now a gastro, a gastro pub. pub yeah. So I think Jonathan Meads may have invented that term. So it says it's a traditional English pub serving homemade classics with a modern twist. So I guess if you've never been there, you might say it's a gastro pub. It's not a gastro pub. Exceptional. People like it. Another great experience. We were visiting London. <laughs> okay. Sorry. You shouldn't go down this <laughs> the hole. The type of people who are going to yeah, <laughs> Come on now. We were visiting London to lay flowers for HM Queen. Uh, I decided to pay another visit to this amazing pub. Okay. Well, so uh, this is where um, there's another um, incident, right? Yes, it's the second big incident. Where isn't the, it? the courier and the doctor. Yeah, and his face falls off, yeah. whatever, yeah. Uh, and that's outside. It's gruesome. On, the, on this gruesome. Patch, of, yeah, yeah. patch of land where we're standing. That's right, yeah. So it's, it's pretty much spot on, isn't it? Yeah, it's very good. I tell you what, if I was eating around here in, that, in those days, you'd go to Carluccio's. <laughs> I think it's mainly out of towners who go there, judging I, by yeah, the TripAdvisor yeah, reviews. It is. Which is probably why you were giving me a hard time about all it. All comic nerds. We were all out of towners once. <laughs> I'm just saying. And it's, it, actually, no, you're right about the comic nerds because it is very close to Forbidden Planet. Of course, you're right. That's a very good point. Thank you. Ben Aranovich, obviously, massive comics nerd, I would yeah. say. Or massive Forbidden Planet nerd, anyway. So they would have gone to. Is the... this the nearest pub to Forbidden Planet? Yeah. Question. Yeah. I think it might be. I think That's it a might good be. inside. If you draw a circle that included the Portico and Covent Garden, this pub, the Royal Opera House, and Russell Square, I reckon that would be one quadrant of a circle that's got Forbidden Planet at its centre. Well, that's very interesting. Actually, you, and probably then if you, because he worked at the Waterston uh, Bookshop yeah. in Covent Garden. Yeah. So if you then did that, there's probably some pentangle or something. There probably is. <laughs> you walk probably between is, probably all, it, Forbidden Planet is the fulcrum of the whole book. I love it. Um, we're not going there. Oh. Well, can we? No. Oh. How does your kind of, um, how does your, um, like, how does it differ when you're writing your novels to writing the graphic novels? Like, do you need more time to do one or the other or do you find it easier to do like, well, a more visual medium? The, the novels are more time consuming because um, <laughs> basically because writing graphic novels is the easiest writing on a kind of line by line basis you can possibly do because only one person actually reads the script right mm-hmm. that's the artist and then he does all the work so we're very pleased about Ben Aranovich's sense of place yes specificity about location yes is all very good isn't it we very found good. that in part one all the river stuff is perfect well the stuff in Th- around Thorpe Park was amazing that uh, he's very yeah. much he'd been right there but dates yes the dating dates I'm not so happy yeah with. he's a bit up and down about this isn't it because I mean the hypothesis is that I mean the book came out in 2011 he does give a date. Well, he does. A very specific date. I started at the beginning with the murder of William Skirmish, Covent Garden, 26th of January. Tuesday. Well, it, again, you know, we've had this before. Like I say to writers, don't say Tuesday. Yeah. Just say 26th of January is fine. Yeah. If you start saying Tuesday to me, yeah. we're going down a rabbit hole. So, You're not going to like. So Tuesday the 26th of January yes. would make it 2010. Uh, yes, or... 1999. Yeah, well, we don't think it's 1999. Well, do we, do we not? No. Oh, okay. Well, I'll tell you one reason it can't be 1999 yeah, go on is there's an Estelle poster in his room. Ah, oh, yes, well spotted. So her big year was 2008, actually. That was her big, that was American Boy came out. Yeah, he does make a slight joke about how it's a bit inappropriate that he's still got yeah. that up on his room and he shouldn't have it. Well, the other reason is the Ian West forensic suite. 
the mortuary actually opened in 2008. Is that a real place? Yeah, it's a real place. Oh, Horse I Frey didn't Road. think that, you see. Horse Frey Road, yeah. So he's done that. Again, he's, he's, the places thing. He's very good he's on very the places. He's very good on places. You know, I think he sort of wants it to be 2010. I had a problem with that in that in the opera yes. that is on, there's mention of a huge ship. There is. So I think the only opera that it could be is The Flying Dutchman. Yes. Uh, Wagner's Flying Dutchman. That was on at the Royal Opera House. But in 2009, oh. and it wasn't on in May. It was it was on in October, I think. So, not good. So that that sort of doesn't really work. But I think he's sort of you know there is an element of playfulness about him yeah. about this stuff because I noticed that while he's, all of the historic places are fine, then the, then the contemporary ones of sort of restaurants and pubs. Yeah, he's mucking about with, isn't he? Well, some of them. His Sheiky's Oyster House is a real place. The what? The Sheiky's Oyster House. Is That's a real true. Place. The Sheiky's is. But then he says he goes to the Tokyo Agogo restaurant yeah. on New Row. Yeah, there isn't a, a restaurant like that there. There is a, obviously there's an Eat Tokyo, the chain, yeah. and would have been there. Yeah, but that's on Drury Lane or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not it's not on New Row, but I noticed that he says Tokyo Agogo, but actually. Tokyo Gogo is a is a website for buying vinyl collectibles of dolls and stuff. Oh, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I thought, <laughs> oh, I see what you've done there. Oh, very good. I yeah. see what you've done there. Yeah. And we said he'd played a game with the name of the pub, the Theodore Bullfrog. Yeah, he said a Roosevelt Toad. Yeah. Right. So you have to watch this out, listener, that he's he's sort of playing. He says he'd go, they go and have a curry, don't they? They have a curry. Uh, on, on, is that on Drury on Lane? On Drury Lane, yeah. There's no the curry. Bengal out. something. Well, that not, doesn't exist. If you yeah. were having a curry in Covent Garden, you'd go to the Royal India. That's where you go. So if you if you want to completely reenact this book, you're going to have to play games like he played games yeah. and sort of be or, roughly right. Or listen to this podcast. Yeah. So I think we know that when he wants to be playful, he can be playful. Yeah. And I suspect he's doing that a little bit about dates as well. The the real no no. Okay. And I I suspect this is this is where the nerds are found out when they try and talk about sport. <laughs> Yeah, I don't see him as being a big sports fan. So there's a moment where Nightingale insists on watching rugby Yes, in the pub. This is also a nod about him saying that Peter is a working-class police officer and Nightingale's some snob. Yeah, And so obviously he snobs watch rugby. Yeah, But even if you're going to diss the snobs and diss the rugby, get your facts right, mate, I'd say. He says that he's watching New Zealand beat the Lions. There's no Lions New Zealand... Test mat in 2010. No. no chance. Anywhere adjacent? 2005, and then they don't play again for ages. So I don't see where he gets that from at right. all. Interesting, isn't it? Okay, so in summary. <laughs> in summary. Oh, do you know what? I think he doesn't do the history stuff very well. Can I just say oh, that? Oh, no, as sorry, well? not in summary. Yes, you uh, get yeah, no, okay, no, in summary. I'm going to keep punching. Okay, keep punching. He says that he, that they go and see Sir Thomas de Vale about getting a, a They do. A for, warrant. For Bow Street. Right. Now, he, he was a, actually a magistrate there from 1740 to 1746. He wasn't actually a colonel or a sir until 1744. So there's only two years in which he could mm-hmm. be Colonel Sir Thomas de Vale issuing warrants. Mm hmm. But the mer- but when we go back to the real life person of Charles Macklin when he was going around stabbing people in their eyes and all that kind of stuff, he was doing that in the seventeen thirties. Mm. He wasn't doing it in the seventeen forties. Okay. So the, I think it's a bit. I know well, he's getting Thomas a warrant for timeless. Thomas Deville was freelancing for quite a long time before he officially became a magistrate. N- not there though. In, but not there. Not, not there. No. Okay. No. Not there. Right. So I think he's he's not bothered about whether it's the 1730s or 1740s. He, he's probably thinking his readers aren't bothered either, yeah. that it's somewhere around that time. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So I did get that wrong one on the road, actually, by the way. I mentioned it. Well, that's because you... John Fielding was the uh, magistrate. Know, you wanted Thomas that. Thomas You wanted that, yes. But that shows you that you're the target reader. You don't care. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The address was on the south side of the square, where a row of Georgian terraces had survived. They were five stories high, counting the dormer conversions, with wrought iron railings defending steep drops into basement flats. The address I wanted had a noticeably grander flight of stairs than its neighbours, leading to double mahogany doors with brass fittings. Carved above the lintel were the words Scientia Potestas Est. Knowledge is power, right? Don't ask me. Yeah. Like, well, obviously I speak Latin every obviously, other week with my did, mates. You probably did Latin and Greek, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my children, I just chat to them in Latin. <laughs> Caesar ad some yam for tea, Pompey ad a rat. Well, OK, before we lose all our listeners... A little, little Latin joke for you there. Yeah, very good. Anyway, we are sitting... <laughs> <laughs> back to the uh, podcast. Chatting, to, chatting about Latin. Chatting about Latin. We are sitting in uh, Russell Square. Russell Square. In central London. You told me it was the second biggest square in London. I know, and then everywhere it says that on the internet, it doesn't tell you what the biggest one is. <laughs> it just tells you what the second one is. I thought I was the biggest square in London. <laughs> The biggest square in London is sitting in the second biggest square in London. <laughs> How about that for a cursive? Nice. Um, so the Russell Square is a is a green square full of plane trees. Uh, so we're we're looking for the folly, which is Nightingale's uh, residence, but it's also the home of English magic since 1725 or something. That's what it calls yeah, it, it? dating is a, is a bit of an issue, isn't it? Yeah. So there is a row of Georgian houses. There is on the south side of the square. Yeah. It's interrupted by a kind of ugly 60s kind of office block in the middle. But on either side of it, there are, there are rows of uh, houses. The other yep. thing that we need to know about the folly, of course, that's not mentioned in that bit I read, is that it has a coach house. Oh, very much so. At the back. Because very that's, important. That's, that's where, where Peter Grant... Peter Grant ends up living. Living, yeah. And also, the other thing is to remember that you need to be able to park a car behind it. That's right. So, yes, we've got some good clues... It says it's five stories high. Yeah. It says it has a fancier staircase than the ones around it. Or we a, a, struggled been, with that, didn't we? Because they're all very samey. The they are a bit samey. Some of them, some of them, the um, tiling has been redone. I wonder if he actually wrote that as a deliberate. It's not one of these. It's here, but it's not one of these. Well, because yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have found some quite interesting architectural points, have we not? Well, we looked around the back of number 44. Yeah, you got quite excited about that, didn't you? Well, I thought it might be it, because it was around the back. At one point, he talks about his bedroom in the main part of the house. Yeah. Looking out to the southeast. So we were on the the corner of the row at number 44, and if he had a bedroom on there, it would have been looking out to the southeast. Yes. It's actually now a French language school, I think. And behind it, there is very much what looks like a coach house. Yes, and in between it, there's a, a a weird kind of metal, those kind of spikes that people put at the top of walls to stop people climbing over. Yeah, 
Now the point about the coach house is that there's a magical force field all around the folly. Yes. Bear with us, listener. It's that kind of book. There's a magical force field around the folly which doesn't cover the coach house. That's so he can get his broadband in. So he can get his broadband in because it doesn't disrupt <laughs> by the magical field. You can tell this is written by a, a sort of games nerd. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Got to have his broadband. Yeah, yeah. There's a gap in that weird metal spike affair on the wall. Yeah. There's about a half a metre gap, I that's would say. Right. I'm like, and I was like, that's where the force field must go, down yeah. the gap. So I quite liked it. But then you it spotted did. a problem. Well... It's six stories high. Got too many floors. Instead of five. Yeah. Whereas you go two doors down. It's a five-story. Well, five-six. And the staircase has been refurbished. It has been refurbished. It's slightly wider. Yeah. Slightly fancier. So now we're liking forty-four. We like forty-six. Forty-six. Sorry, forty-six. 46. Yeah, because the numbers go round Russell yeah. Square. And then, of course, we were, if you go in the in the middle of that south side of Russell Square, there's a street called Bedford Row. Is it? Uh, on that side, yes, it goes. Bedford, no, no, Bedford Road goes middle. down the middle, and then yeah, Montague down the middle. Road. And then when I was there, a grill came up. Yeah, grill did And come a up. little um, moped came out. And yeah. You looked down there with a wizard on it. <laughs> yeah, he's come. He's, he, he used to have a Jag. Now, yeah. now he's got a Deliveroo scooter. Well, now <laughs> he's down on his luck. I, I haven't read post, the subsequent novels. Post but I'm Deliveroo, that's you what can happens. order your wizards online to come to your house. And they all go out on those little scooters. Can you rate them? You can rate them afterwards. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it did look like there was parking around the back there. It did. So you could zip through uh, on Bedford Row around the back. So That's the row, possible. The row between right Bedford... Right next door to the Pen Club, by the way, where John Wyndham lived. Indeed. Indeed so. But yeah, so it works though, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, as a location it works. Well, it kind of works, except until you start looking at the history of Russell Square. Okay. And then you realise this has got to be rubbish. Oh dear. Uh, because Russell Square wasn't, wasn't laid out until the early 1800s. Oh, really? Well, those houses are Georgian. Uh, early. early 1800s is Georgian, mate. Of course. <laughs> of course. Because he tries to make say that and it, Isaac Newton moved it into there. Well, it's, a, it's absolute nonsense. They weren't laid out. Let me, let me find the bit where he talks about the dates. I'm wondering whether it's his library. The one thing he does say is that the library's the key bit. So maybe the books are ancient, but the building isn't. And that might be his let out. Well, so Nightingale was waiting for me by the statue. Now, the statue oh, right, is right actually of Francis, Duke of Bedford. Yeah. Um, we're sitting by it right now. Welcome to the folly, he said, the official home of English magic since 1775. So you're saying that's too early. What would have been there would have been... Um, Fields. The Bedf- no, Bedford House, a massive... Yeah, there's pictures of it on the internet, of, of etchings of it. A, a huge stately home would have been there that they knocked down to build this. Oh, wow, OK. And it wasn't open until the early 1800s. And it wasn't fashionable to live here until the 1850s or something like that. So that's a bit of a black mark against uh, well, Mr. Ranovich. Well, I think he's just... He's, I, do you know what? He's another London fantasist, like Ackroyd, where you've got some buildings, they look a bit historical, and then you can make up a story around them, and you don't bother looking on the internet as to whether the dates match or not, and you don't care. OK. I... I've got beef with these people. You do you really have? That sounded very bitter. <laughs> I'm actually warming to Neil Gaiman at this point. <laughs> oh, by the way, have you ever seen a ghost? A real life spirit, not a joke or a hoax. What if it spoke to you? What if you spoke back? Hard to define as a bloke to bloke chat. I'd say that's a life changer. Now things are quite strange. I'm in all types of danger. But over my head flies a nightingale. Ready for anything this might entail. So now we're getting gold shivers as I'm following these rivers of London. At every crossroad junction. You think I'm going to give this quite a low mark? <laughs> that's good. I'm quite looking forward to hearing what you have to say mm. about it. Shall I go first? Please do. So we give two marks. We give a curiously specific rating. And we give an artistic merit rating, which is obviously done rather tongue-in-cheek. Now, the curiosity-specific rating, I think we both find that, which is about how seriously the author takes the dates and locations in mm. their book, we both find that his locations are very well done. Yes, yeah, they're even, lovely. Even the way he plays around with them. So I think, you know, if we were just doing it on locations, you'd get a solid 10 from me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really? Because it's very, yeah, because it's, it's part of the reason for the book is that the uh, locations are so strongly done. Okay. And I think the minute I thought that was when we were sat in Runnymede 
next to the ancient tree and there's the priory ruin right next to it and it's like that's not necessarily a really obvious place to find actually i would have given him a 10 he does come a little bit unstuck on dates which yes, i think he's less discussed yes. he's less interested in so i'm going to give him a eight for being okay. curiously specific now okay. on the question of artistic merit yeah very important i think you have to take this book as it's intended to be taken it's supposed to be fun. Yeah. It's supposed to be a bit of a laugh. It's escapism. He obviously, and he wrote it, I think, very deliberately to get published and be a bestseller. And if you take the book on that reference, it's incredibly well done. So I, that's the way I'm going to take it. And I'm going to give him a nine. <laughs> sorry. That, sorry. You're I'm giving gonna give him, him the same score as Barry Hines. Yes, I am. Because I think, in its own way, it's as skillful. And Gwendolyn Riley. I'm not saying it's quote-unquote, as good a book. I'm saying on its own merit, for the audience it's trying to reach and the way it's trying to reach it, it's a really well-put-together piece of work. So I'm giving it a nine. There you go. Do you need to get a job with him or something? Stick, stick that in your pipe. Are you worried you're going to meet him on a street somewhere? No. <laughs> I'm amazed. No. I'm just, uh, I just think I've been thinking Gosh. about what I wanted to say. No, fair like, enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So I really enjoyed it. I um, really enjoyed I'm reading it. quite winded by that, I must say. <laughs> Go on. Anyway, I, Go I'd on like so to... So an eight I, and a nine. I, I'd he I'd gets like a high re- mark from me. Yeah, he gets... Yes. 17. <laughs> yes, a precipitous mark, <laughs> I'd say. And obviously I'm slightly doing that because... Uh, you want to see my reaction, yeah, right? <laughs> God, well, there it is. I don't need to say any more, really, do I? Do I, do, shall I bother with a mark? Move so shall you, I bother you, with a mark? Do you want to say the same? No, what I want to do is I want to quote from the author. Okay. For me, setting is very important. I'm the kind of reader who is deeply disappointed if a fantasy novel doesn't have a map included. Yeah, quite right. But setting is very story-dependent. Some stories rely on a very ambiguous setting especially if they're aiming to create a fey or dreamlike tone. Others rely on a very solid, thought-out background, whether imaginary, like the city in the 87th precinct novels of Ed McBain, or real, as in the London of Rivers of London. Setting is like plot and character, something that, as a writer, you need to keep an eye on, but that shouldn't intrude upon the reader's consciousness unless they're deconstructing for lulls (laughs) or academic credits. I feel seen. <laughs> there, that's very good. There has been a tendency in mainstream fiction to equate minimalism in setting as an automatically good thing. Oh, we don't agree. But this assumes that your audience shares a particular cultural background with the author. Yeah. This is a mistake. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. Yes. So You've uh, got to take the book on the basis on which it's written. I think we see where he's coming from yeah. in terms of whether he cares about the opinion of people like me. He essentially doesn't want to know what my mark is for artistic merit. Uh, so so uh, I'm considering not giving one. <laughs> I will give it a seven. For artistic merit? Yeah. Right. So I think seven's generous. I think seven's miraculous. <laughs> well, I, I, but I think he's clever. He's really clever. He's really good at what he does. And also that he's got that transmedia thing going on, which obviously I respect, yeah. which is that it can be a comic book, it can be an audio book, you know, it yeah. could be a vinyl collector's doll. It could be, <laughs> it could be all these things. Not sure what the last one, but okay. It could be an immersive experience. Okay. You know, good luck to him. And then in terms of the, the Q spec, I'm going to give him a seven again. It's not, it's not high, it's not low. I'm saying that great locations, Yeah. some of them more accurate than others. Yeah. But... All in all, his love of London, his love of... Comes st- through, doesn't it? And his love of sort of storytelling about places and, uh, uh, you, know, and uh, you know that he's picked up. That's us, isn't it? It really is. Right at home with us. And he took us to the source of the Thames, which is not... I would have gone somewhere else. I would have gone to Cricklade or somewhere like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think... That was all good. It's, it's really and it, good. that field felt great as yeah. well, didn't yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of them just felt great of like, yeah, no, this is great. Yeah. And there's loads of layers of history here yeah. for you to play with which is what he does. Yeah. So that's good. So two sevens. So I think that's actually... That's a pretty good score. From where I started with my prejudices I to think get to been, a 14... I think you've been very fair. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on this journey with me yeah. into the realms of magic, fantasy and imagination. Great. Can we do something else now? Mother Thames 
lived east of the White Tower in a converted warehouse just short of the Shadwell Basin. It was just the other side of the slipway from the Prospect of Whitby, an ancient pub that was a legendary jazz venue back in the day. To the main road, the warehouse showed a blind face of London brick pierced by modern windows. But on the Thames side, the old loading wharves had been converted into a car park. I parked up between an orange Citroen Picasso and a firebrick red Jaguar XF with an Urban Dance FM sticker in the windscreen. Very specific. As I stepped out, I had the clearest sense of vestigia so far. A sudden smell of pepper and seawater, as quick and shocking as the scream of a gull. Quite good, huh? Very good. No gulls today, although I can see a gull flying along the other side of the river. We're in my happy place, Tim. You love it here, don't you? Wapping is my happy place. So we're sitting on the north bank of the Thames, downstream from the City of London, downstream from Tower Bridge and the Tower of London and all those famous places. And before you get to the Isle of Dogs and its new gleaming skyscrapers, you find yourself at Wapping, which is a very ancient place. used to have lots of wharves along the river here. And then in the early 19th century, they built the London Dock behind us, which had two basins. It had the London Dock Basin and the Shadow Basin. So when he says it's short of the Shadow Basin, I'm not quite sure what he means by short of. Shadow Basin's like behind us. The description of the apartment block that's been built out of the old warehouse is absolutely bang on, isn't it? It's really good, It's a wall of London brick. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And this is where Mama Thames lives. Yeah, funny funny place, isn't it? For why he picked here. Yeah, you'd wonder why. Perhaps he likes the prospect of Whitby well, I did pub wonder as much as you do. To do with the prospect of Whitby. Now sitting here, it feels very rivery, very riverine. It's the it's the part it's the part of the book that's you can't miss the Thames here. Most Thames, Thames is very wide here. What I was interested to find out was that that, that uh, Mother Thames OBE yeah. lived very near here. The real one, uh, Mother Thames OBE, Helen Mirren. No. Hello, you, Mirren, I, just no, you don't there. know this story, do you? This is no. good. In 1972, the BBC made a documentary about the death of river trade featuring the redoubtable Dorothea Woodward Fisher. Oh. The Woodward Fishers had worked on the river for over 50 years and had a property in Narrow Street yeah. near Duke's Door Stairs for many years. And the 72 programme made Dorothea into a bit of a celebrity and she was often in demand for interviews... And she was known as the Grand Old Lady of the Thames, or Lady Dorothea of the River. Right. The only woman barge owner actively in the business, and its personality queen as well. People think I've got a gruff voice, she said. Well, so I have, and I wouldn't be without it. If I'd had a sweet girlish voice, I wouldn't have got anywhere. I've been called all kinds of things and done all sorts of business on the phone, when if they'd known I was a woman, they wouldn't have talked to me. Oh, wow. One tug skipper always refers to her as Old Cock. He sends her the occasional box of cigars. She's a character in theme. That's fantastic. There's a lovely picture of her on isleofdogslife.wordpress.com. Anyway. Well, I think if you're, uh, if you're visiting it, we'd like, to, we'd like to tell people to come to places in London that they wouldn't normally come. Yeah. Wapping is absolutely one of the places I would tell you to come. I like the fact that we didn't follow the book narrative and sort of start in... Uh, and yeah, this common finish, isn't it? Yeah, I think that the Good idea that we, this book is taking you from the source of the Thames down to Wapping yeah, and everywhere at, in between—that's a hell of a journey, isn't it? Well, if you think about that dry field where we were supposed to see the spring, the t- it's come a long way. This river, metaphorically <laughs> and literally. <laughs> well done. I'm liking the fact that we're managing to return to the tradition of ending our podcast at the pub. Absolutely. I seem to remember when we first started this, that was going to be a rule. And that was a rule. breaking the rule. Then it became more of a guideline. We need to say some thank yous. As always, our regular one is to say thank you to Learning Music, an artist on the Free Music Archive. For our, our groovy bassy loop. Bassy loop theme tune, yeah. as we like to call it. Very good. Um, I've slightly started dreaming that theme in my head. <laughs> we need to give a shout out. 
to one of our Patreon supporters. A shout-out, good. Yes. I like it when we do this. Well, if you're one of our regular Patreon supporters and you pay us £2 a month, you don't get a shout-out. <laughs> but if you're Pauline Dawson... If you Dawson, give us more money, we mention your name. <laughs> if you're Pauline Dawson... Yeah. And you've upgraded from £2 to £5. In New Ze- Pauline in New Zealand? Yes. 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 Pauline, who... She says some Hello, very nice Pauline. things about our, uh, our Neverwhere podcast. Yes. But, um, she's, and Hawksmoor, and Hawksmoor podcast. I have to say, she's been very nice about our podcast from early on, yeah. early doors. She's talked about it a lot on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so, hello, Pauline, and thank you so much for your support. Absolutely. And uh, we're looking forward to talking to you directly... On our Discord on server. On our Discord server. Yeah. The current discussion that I'm enjoying is about uh, running man or fugitive novels... And why they're they're all men running away yes. and hardly any women. Yes. Which actually, when you think about it, is obvious. Yeah. <laughs> but well, it's, it's slightly more sinister with women running away, exactly, I suppose. Exactly. Um, but, but it's quite, it's, it's turfing up some interesting books. Some interesting books, yeah. yeah. So, which hopefully we'll do some yeah. of. Yeah. So, so join us and Pauline. Welcome. Uh, uh, welcome. Now, in terms of thanks for uh, music uh, and stuff that are used on the Rivers of London podcast... I have to say thank you to Mr. Seth. Mr. Seth. Singing with Mr. Seth is a book of multicultural songs that people can sing along to, and he's the guy who, who's singing Rivers of London. He's on YouTube. He's called Seth Townsend, and I recommend it, actually, because he goes all around the world getting folk songs and old traditional songs and singing them with people from some kids and some people very old and everyone in between. It's a really great little project, actually. And I suppose I'm just going to give a little nod to that. I, fa- I was a bit surprised when I found this, the River of London rap. Oh, yes. That was amazing. <laughs> With Ben Doc Brown-Smith, huh? who's quite well known, isn't he? So it's executive produced by Ben Aronovich. Oh, really? Yes, it is. Oh, very good. Um, I found it a little bit awkward. Did you? But, you found the whole experience of this book a little bit that's awkward, That's just me, isn't it? Your awkwardness has, has, has shone through for the last, the last 100, 100 minutes or so of podcasting. I think you're going to be relieved from... We're moving away from uh, the, fantasy, fa- the fantasy hinterlands. Relax. Into a, a different world for our next three podcasts. Yes. Uh, well, again, not, probably not my thing, but probably more my thing. Yeah. Um, but well, one fir- of them particularly is your thing, judging. I've seen what's coming on one of the uh, podcasts. <laughs> uh, we're going to be doing three episodes about uh, the grand dames of detective fiction. Yeah, we're starting with the biggest of them all, so keep keep an eye out for that. It'll be in your ears in a week's time. Is that so? When you just say the biggest of them all, oh, everyone knows know. what I'm talking about. Everybody knows. Everyone what I'm knows what I'm about. talking about. <laughs> There's only one name that springs to mind when you talk about the grand dame of detective fiction. Oh, yes, Ruth Rendell. No, <laughs> I'm not even going to say it. Um, but join us in a week's time for that. It's going to be very good. For, for a murder, a man has been stabbed in the neck with yeah. a silver knife. And the only person who can help him is a man who grows marrows. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> 